Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. Today we are joined by Dr. Brad Grunert, a psychologist who has worked for many years with patients who have sustained traumatic injuries to their upper extremity. He shares with us techniques that we can utilize in our hand therapy sessions to support the psychological needs of our patients and to help them cope with their injury. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Dr. Grunert. Hi, everyone. We're back this evening and we have a great guest tonight. His name is Dr. Grunert, and he is going to start by introducing himself and telling us all a little about himself. Hi, I'm uh, Brad Grunert, and I am a PhD, a licensed psychologist. My position is a professor of psychology in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And this is my 47th year of being in practice. I've worked almost that entire time with primarily people with upper extremity injuries and uh, trauma, mostly from an industrial setting, but also from injuries. They're playing badly with their saw or in a motor vehicle crash or something like that. So that is what I have devoted my career to. I've published extensively on that, probably more than 40 referee journal publications, a dozen or more book chapters, that sort of thing. I've presented all over the United States and Australia, some other places, dealing with these types of issues. So that's my background, and that's what I do. So how did you get involved in specializing in upper extremity? Well, actually, I was very lucky in my career. When I was completing my training, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Hanny Matlub and Dr. James Sanger, who were two young plastic surgeons who had just finished their residencies. And this was back in the late 70s. So they were just starting to do wonderful things like uh, replantation surgeries, revascularization surgeries. And one of the things that they found was that they could do these incredible surgeries and put eight fingers back on someone who had lost them, but they were having a lot of difficulty getting people back into work because they were very avoidant, very frightened of going back into work. And so just by chance, they were referring people to Curative Rehabilitation Center, which is 200 yards north of where the medical college is. That's where I was working at that time doing finishing my training up, and I ended up seeing several of their patients working with them on this brand new diagnosis that had just come out in the DSM-3 called post-traumatic stress disorder. And the three of us worked together for several years and then started uh, publishing some of the research that we had done in the psychological aspects of people recovering from traumatic hand injuries. And that's how it went. And then they offered me a position at the medical college to come and join them in their clinic. That's fantastic that you were part of that team physically, as well as just knowing that you're being referred to these patients. How do these patients get connected with you? How does that work? In our setting, actually, my office is directly adjacent to the hand center at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Frederick Hospital. For a while, actually, before they moved the hand center to the location it's at now, my office was actually in the hand center. So it was very easy and very 
easy for patients also because they would see people coming in and out of my office all the time. I would be out in the clinic talking with people. I would coach them through some of their initial dressing changes, maybe seeing their hand for the first time. So while the hand therapist is working with them, I would be there talking with them and reassuring them, helping them get through some significant pain sometimes, a lot of fear about what they were going to see, whether their fingers were going to still be there. They're pretty ugly, bloody mess a lot of times when you have the first dressing change or the second dressing change. So that's how things work in terms of how people refer to me. And I always joke around. I say the hand therapists and the, the hand surgeons that I work with, we've worked together so long now that they can do a really nice psychological screening. I can do a really nice explanation of what type of surgery they've had and what type of therapy they're going to have. And they're very adept at picking up on people who have issues and are having difficulties coping and getting a referral to me very early. Sometimes I'll see people within three to five days after their injury. I used to see people right in the hospital following their surgeries, uh, but I'm no longer at the hospital just because of growth and everything. We've been moved to an outpatient clinic. So I usually don't see them now until roughly a week to two weeks after they've had their initial injury and repair. I work in pediatrics. And as you were explaining this and your role, even those initial visits in pediatrics, we have a role called a child life specialist who provides those coping mechanism. And as you were explaining that, I thought you sound like a child life specialist, but in this adult clinic, which is fantastic that you're there to provide that support because it is traumatic. And sometimes we as therapists, we put our heads down, we've got a job to get done and Maybe sometimes we miss that aspect of, oh, I'm used to seeing this, this situation. Like I'm used to seeing the blood. I'm used to seeing the pins, the sutures, whatnot. But we sometimes forget that our patient, this is new to them. This is their first time. And so having that person who can be there to sit next to them and guide them through that, that's a wonderful offering for these patients. I think it's also, you know, one of the really important things I think is that as medicine has changed over the years, the surgeons have much less time to spend with people postoperatively than they used to. And so it's very beneficial to have somebody who does have that time and can listen to the concerns of patients and then go back and in two to three minutes, inform the surgeon, inform the hand therapist, hey, this is what's going on. This is some of the things that I'm working with them on. They may have trouble looking at their hands. We may need to cover their hand when they're getting their initial dressing changes done for the first couple of weeks until we can get them to the point where they can do that successfully and actually view their hand. I don't know how it is at your facilities, but at our facility, a lot of the therapists have been trained that the sooner the patient sees their injury and starts coping with it and adjusting to it, the better. That's not always the case. Sometimes you need to give them time just to process those memories of what they saw at the time of the accident before they're ready to look at their hand now. Yeah, I found it very interesting as far as the coping abilities or coping skills and recommendations you had listening to your lecture in the Bahamas. How can we as clinicians recognize or identify the therapists that you work with frequently they have you there to refer to. But a lot of therapists out across the United States don't have somebody like that. So what are some of the key signs or symptoms that we have somebody that's really struggling with their diagnosis or struggling with the loss of function or struggling to return to work? 
because not everyone will say, hey, I'm afraid to go back to work or I can't look at my hand. It's upsetting to me or it's affecting me emotionally or psychologically or affecting me with things at home. What are things that we can look for or you can suggest to our listeners? I think that one of the big things is people who are struggling psychologically often have lots of sleep difficulties initially. And so our surgeons are, again, very good, and the hand therapists are also very good at asking, how are you sleeping? Pretty benign question, but if you hear that, well, I'm not sleeping well at all, I'm having a lot of trouble falling asleep, I'm awakening due to nightmares, and then it's hard for me to get back to sleep, I'm only sleeping two or three hours at a time, those are all big red warning flags for us in terms of, oh, this is somebody that's struggling and that really needs assistance psychologically to get through this. If spouses come in, which often they do, they're usually transporting the people, at least for the first few visits, because they're still taking pain medicine and that sort of thing. If you can engage the spouse and, and ask, how are they doing? And oftentimes they'll say, well, they're not sleeping well and they're really irritable. That's another warning sign is if there's a lot of irritability, if they're snapping, if they're not engaging, if they're isolating themselves, pulling away from people, those are warning signs that they're not reacting well to the traumatic event. And then, of course, if they're averting their gaze, they're not looking at their hand, that's another big sign that they haven't really dealt with things or maybe don't even understand what it is that they're supposed to be dealing with or coping with in terms of the process of adjusting following the injury. So I don't think you really need to get into, are you afraid to go back to work? In fact, many people will say, yes, I intend to go back to work in the first couple of weeks afterwards. It's not until two, three, four months afterwards that they've gotten to the point where they can even admit to themselves, you know what, I can't go back and do that, or I can't go back and work on that machine, or I'm scared to death whenever I hear a loud sound, I think it's the punch press taking my fingers off again, or whatever it happens to have been in terms of the mechanism of injury. So the big initial signs are irritability, social isolation, sleeping poorly, maybe having nightmares. That's a very frequent symptom in our injured population. We did a study and many, many years ago, it was presented back in the early or actually mid to late 1980s. And 91% of people who have had a traumatic work injury are experiencing nightmares for the first month or two following the accident itself. And 88% of them are experiencing flashbacks and reliving of the event. We actually did a study where we had nurses in the emergency department screening patients, and usually that was within an hour of their accident that they were being screened by the nurses in the emergency department. And people then were already reporting that they were having flashbacks of the accident happening. And that's very, very fresh in their mind, but they're already reliving it multiple times, and it's re-traumatizing them multiple times through that adjustment process. So some of these symptoms begin very, very quickly following the traumatic event. And if you can gently ask people about that, you don't want to interrogate them and conduct, but you can say you're making a dressing change. Do you ever relive the accident? Does it ever seem like it's happening all over again? And you'd be surprised. People will open up about that. And then once you've identified that, then you can make a referral to get a mental health professional involved in their care. And in terms of mental health professional, you really want somebody that deals with trauma. If they're not trauma trained, if they don't know what to do, it can be actually very detrimental to people. It's not going to be helpful to go in and see a therapist who says, well, tell me how your week was. That's just not going to do it. It's not going to help them get better. It's not going to help them achieve the goals that they need to achieve. So it's interesting. You had discussed extensively the process, and I found it fascinating 
And it's not something that I really ever thought of approaching that way. But once you discussed it, it made complete sense on how to gently reintroduce going back to work. We think as clinicians, okay, we want to do work simulation tasks as far as can they lift, push, pull, carry? Can they make a fist? Can they do this? Can they do that? I don't often think of the psychological aspect of actually returning to work. Can you touch base a little bit on that and explain your process? What we often do is we do, it's called prolonged imaginal exposure as an initial treatment technique. And that's done in the office. What we do is we go back, we have the patient go through the accident, sometimes with their eyes closed, if that helps them visualize better what happened and create a narrative of what happened, what the events were and how they occurred in a minute by minute or second by second passage of time so that they get a complete story of what happened. And what we find oftentimes is that our patients have snapshot memories of different parts of the whole event that occurred. You know, they may have a snapshot memory of hearing the machine, and then they may have a snapshot memory of their coworker coming over to them. And then they may flash back to seeing their hand with their fingers severed or crushed or whatever it happens to be, and then flash to the ambulance taking them in. But it's chaotic. It's not organized very well in their memory. And so going through that process helps them to organize their memories of the accident, make it into a narrative that is a timeline of what the events were that happened and helps them establish some control over it. And, and as a therapist, I'm asking them questions while they're doing that. Well, what did you do that allowed you to get your hand out of the machine? Or what happened when you heard the click and you knew that the machine was going to close? You said that you jerked your hand back. What would have happened if you hadn't jerked your hand back? Well, I would have lost my arm and instead you lost two fingers, that is something that you did that resulted in a much less serious injury. So we do that in the office, and that's the prep work behind it. When they get closer to time to go back to work, oftentimes what we'll do is just what we call a graded work exposure. So I may have them drive down the street that their plant is on and drive past the building every day for a week or two. Oftentimes, they'll, they'll express that they had a lot of anxiety doing that. They really didn't want to do it. Some people will even stop two or three blocks away, and they just feel like they can't do it. And so we work on some breathing strategies and just stress management, anxiety management things to help them get to the point where they can do that. Once they're able to do that, we may have them drive into the parking lot and just park in the parking lot for 15 or 20 minutes on a daily basis and every other day basis, whatever is reasonable for them, depending on how close they live to the work setting until they feel comfortable doing that. And then maybe we'll have them go in and go into the human resources department so that they're talking with some of the people there, but they're not in that manufacturing setting. They're not in the manufacturing part of the plant. And then maybe go to the cafeteria so they get exposed to some of their coworkers and they get a chance to talk with them. And it's just a step-by-step -step thing. And then when they're actually ready to go into the plant, we may have them go into the plant for a week and just observe for an hour. They're not doing anything. They're just observing what's going on, getting desensitized to the sounds around them, to the different emotion that goes on in the work setting or whatever, and then introduce them to working maybe a day for an hour a day or something, and then two hours a day, increasing that until they're back to full time. It is very rare for people to go back and work on the same machine that they were injured on. We have data on over a thousand patients. We've had 12 of them who have actually gone back and worked on the same machine. 10 of them, six months after they went back, were no longer working on that machine. They either transferred or switched to a different company or a different job or whatever. 
because they just couldn't tolerate that. And the two people that continued to work on that machine were uncomfortable doing it, but that was the highest paying job in the plant and they wanted that income and revenue. And so they gutted it out. It was still taking a toll on them in terms of doing that. So it's a very structured. I know all the hand therapists, your desensitization to nerve injuries and things. This is consider the big nerve. It's the brain. We're going to desensitize people's brains to being able to go back and be in that setting again. Sounds very similar to with patients that have chronic pain or CRPS, we do graded motor imagery. And one of the first parts is those imagined movements. Let's talk through what it's going to take for you to do your laundry or whatever those, their ADLs or maybe work activities. But this is, let's reimagine, let's step back and talk through that machinery, putting them back in that situation of where they sustain that life-changing injury. Exactly. And there's no magic to this. I think that A lot of our hand therapists do this and reinforce this. It's nice to have a mental health professional who can devote time to just talking with a person, really getting a good feel for them. But if you don't have that, and there are places around where you just don't have anybody that has that type of training or background, you can do a good job as a hand therapist structuring that and helping a lot of people to achieve that goal without necessarily having a professional mental health worker in especially the occupational therapists I worked with, they've had exposure to psychiatric patients and that's just part of your training. And so you've already got a feel for that. And I think that that can be done. The other thing that's nice is since the COVID epidemic, we're able to do telehealth. So I'm seeing patients now who are 150, 200 miles away from me. They don't drive in for their appointment. We do it via telehealth. You can still structure the things the same and get a good feel for people and help them out doing that. So I think that that's also a very important resource for people is don't necessarily look in your immediate area. If there's not somebody there or somebody available, you may need to search a little further afield for that. Not all of us are lucky to have a Dr. Gruner in their office. What does that, you mentioned having that carryover with the therapist you work with and that relationship, what does that look like in your setting when these patients are seeing the doctor, they're seeing the therapist, they're seeing you? How does that all work together in combination, progressing them through all of their entire rehab timeline? I think that we're fairly fluid with that. So if I have a patient and they come in and they say, next week I'm seeing, you know, Dr. Hedinger for a follow-up. I've got some things that I'd like to discuss with him or whatever. We may talk about what is it that you want to discuss. I may encourage them to write down some questions because the doctor's always a little more patient if you're organizing, you got questions in front of you. And then I may ask them, would you like me to be there? They staff with the doctor and then the hand therapist is there. Then I may be there too. So it's really a small conference that they're an integral part of. And they know that we're not talking about them when they're not there. We're talking about them when they are there. And they get to ask their questions and I can serve as an advocate for them or their hand therapist can be an advocate for them or whatever so that we can get to the point where we're addressing the issues that they really want addressed. And you heard me say in the Bahamas that I don't like to have the rehab case managers there because then it becomes their session. It's not the patients anymore. They subvert those and take it over because... They've got their whole list of questions, and they're very organized, and they're very good at presenting their concerns, and they trample over the patient and any of the concerns anybody else has because 
they've got their list of duties from the insurance company and questions that need to be answered. So we let them talk to us afterwards. And we may have the patient present when they do that, but the patient gets their appointment with the doctor for them, not for anybody else. You had touched on thinking that we often will jump to the conclusion that somebody's a malingerer or that they just don't want to go back to work or they don't want to go back into functioning again. And what are your thoughts on that? My experience is that, especially with traumatic injuries in the work setting, malingering is very rare. I think you see that more with people that come in who've got the unexplained lymphedema, they may be self-tourniqueting, the repeated infections in their hands where they may be manipulating wounds or putting some foreign body into their hands or whatever. That's a whole different thing. We've also, with my experience, we've published on, on those sorts of things too. So we've talked about factitious disorders and conversion disorders and that sort of thing and published multiple articles on that. But I think that Malingering, per se, is a very rare thing in this population. What you see more is that people are reticent or reluctant about going back to work. More often than not, they're afraid. They either feel that the environment is unsafe, they feel that the employer has a history of getting rid of people who've been injured if they come back to work, or they're just simply afraid of being in that environment and having something else happen to them. I often talk about people who have lost their vision in one eye. They're incredibly protective of their other eye. People who've lost the function in their hand are incredibly protective of their remaining hand. It's all they got left. And if you lose that or you lose part of that, you really become very, very impaired. And so it's important to understand what this looks like from the patient's point of view in terms of if I'm going back in and this is a plant where they've had five major hand injuries in the last two years, it's a big risk for me to be back there, and I need to be somewhere where I know that I'm not going to be injured in order for me to feel safe and to feel secure being in that environment again. What are some of the things that we can do as clinicians to try to assist with coping if we don't have a mental health professional readily available? What are some of the things that we can do? It's very important to talk to people about things like sleep hygiene. Don't get on your phone. If you wake up after two hours of sleep, don't get on your phone. We know that phones produce way too much blue light that stimulates a hormone in your eye that tells you it's time to wake up and be active. That's the worst thing you can do if you want to go back to sleep. You're playing on your phone. You think it's going to make you tired. It's not. It's going to make you more awake. So some of those things. I have a quiet room. Maybe use a weighted blanket if you need to. Um, have the room cool instead of hot. Just basic sleep hygiene things. And those things are available online. Take melatonin if you need to, all kinds of things that are going to be helpful to you in terms of preparing yourself to sleep. And the worst thing people do is after they've had several nights of not sleeping well is they start dreading going to sleep. It's like, oh my God, I know I'm going to wake up again. So you have all this catastrophic thinking that begins to evolve and telling them that's not going to be helpful to you. I remember when in my first psychology class, I had a professor and for the first exam, he said, the best thing you can do tonight is get a good night's sleep. Don't stay up and study all night for the exam. Get a good night's sleep. And remember, if you can't get a good night's sleep, if you're worrying and you're anxious about it, even laying there quietly and resting is going to be restorative for you. 
that is true for our patients too. You don't need to be active. You need to let your body relax. You need to unwind. And even if you're just dozing off here and there, and it's going to be beneficial to you and really help them decatastrophize the situation so that they're not worried about going to sleep. We also talked a little bit during the talk in the Bahamas about having them contact their family physician and look at something like Prozosin if they're having nightmares because that's very effective and it's a very safe medication. It's an antihypertensive medication. It was originally marketed as mini press many, many years ago. And to use Prozosin to help reduce the nightmares, it's been shown to be effective in about 85, 90% of people who have nightmares from post-traumatic stress disorder in reducing or eliminating nightmares. So the hand surgeons won't prescribe it. They're not going to manage hypertensive medications, but get them connected with their PCP who can prescribe that and follow them and make sure that their blood pressure doesn't go too low, or if they are already on a blood pressure medication, if they can adjust the other one so that this can assist them in managing their nightmares, which again is going to improve the quality and quantity of their sleep. So sleep is a huge thing, just in terms of mood and, and everything else. And I think just being open and letting people tell their story. A lot of times you've got time when you're having them do exercises or whatever, let them tell your story. Let them tell you what happened. And just having that ear and having somebody that can listen to them helps them organize their thinking and go through it. One of the homework assignments I give my patients is, okay, every day I want you to go home and just sit somewhere quietly. And if you've got a spouse and your spouse is willing to listen, just go through what happened and tell them the story of what happened. And it just helps them put those pieces back together and make that coherent storyline for themselves, which is very beneficial to their coping. I think we do have a benefit of that with our patients, that we have a captive audience, and we are a captive audience as well. I think it works both ways for 30, 45 minutes to an hour, potentially maybe, if you're lucky, a little bit longer than that. So we do have the opportunity, and we're seeing them multiple times a week as well, potentially. So there is an opportunity to develop that relationship. And I think you're right that we can have those open lines of communication with our patients. And even if it doesn't come out that first visit, hopefully just allowing those conversations to organically happen over the course of their plan of care with us. I think that's definitely a benefit of our profession. Right, exactly. If you show them that you're willing to listen, it's amazing how much they'll open up and share with you. We have, and I'm sure that you experience that too, but in the waiting room, you'll see Two people that are there who both have a new amputation and lost a finger or whatever. It's like, well, how did this happen to you? And how did it happen to you? And and they form those relationships. And a lot of them will make sure that they schedule so that they're going to run into that person again. It's very helpful just to have people listen. And if you think about it, there's very little harm that anybody can do by asking somebody what happened to them and having them go through that and explain it to you and just being compassionate and listening and encouraging them. You're not going to hurt them. You're not going to break them. You're not going to cause them any more mental duress. When I first presented some of the work that we've done nationally to a fellow psychologist, they were appalled. It was like, oh my God, you make them talk about this terrible event? Yeah. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. I've had people screaming in my office because they feel just like they're caught in the machine again. That's not a comfortable situation to be in. But you know what? They live that every day. They have those flashbacks every day. I'm not doing anything to them that they're not already experiencing. And if we do it in a very structured way, they get better. 
it helps them a lot and they feel more control and they've been through the worst and they've gone through it. And those memories aren't so frightening anymore because they know they've come out on the other side of it. That's really helpful to hear you say that because I think sometimes if I do have a patient who's either reluctant to, or they do get upset when they start talking about it, that's, I think, a good reminder to myself that they are living this every day and it is healthy for them to be talking about it in a supportive and a caring environment. And so we shouldn't stray from bringing that up. Sometimes we get reluctant, like, oh, I don't want to bring up those feelings that you've had, but we should be because we are there to help them. And part of that is talking through it with them. Exactly. And the surgeon isn't going to be able to do that. And if you don't have a mental health professional readily available to you, that just means nobody else is going to do it. And that means that they've lost an opportunity to do some healing that would be very beneficial to them. I think one other important thing to remember is we get injuries every single day that we're going to treat. And they're all different levels of trauma. I may have somebody who fell and just fractured their wrist, but they're afraid to walk down the stairs that they fell and broke their wrist. So it's not as traumatic as having your hand stuck in a machine, but to just be respectful of everybody's level of tolerance and what they can experience. I'll give a good example. There was an explosion in the area where I live and there was several younger gentlemen who were severely burned in this explosion. And most of them sustained at least second and third degree burns to their upper extremities. And the personality differences and how they're handling the injury themselves, how they're handling their employer and the rehab nurses, how they're handling just the ability to cope with their loss of function, whether it's some have more physical or functional loss than others, but their coping levels are all completely different. And it's almost the same injury, but again, you're dealing with three different humans and their tolerance is very different. So I just think it's important to remember that no matter what the trauma is, how severe or how insignificant, or I don't want to say insignificant, but how minor the trauma is, it does affect everybody differently. We see that too. We have people that will basically nip off the tip of their finger and react more severely than some of our people who've lost three fingers in an accident. And a lot of that, again, has to do with what is their thought process? How catastrophic is that for them? They may be thinking, oh my God, I just, by the luck of God, managed to have my hand in the right position. I could have had my whole arm sucked in or... We have a lot of paper manufacturing around here. If I get just the tip of my finger nipped off between two rollers, I could have been pulled through there and killed. Or And those are the catastrophic thoughts that cause what is really a minor injury. And what we look at is like, wow, you should be better. You should be back at work by now. But for them, that's catastrophic. I just dodged the bullet. I faced my own mortality here. And a lot of times that's something that's overlooked and not appreciated by the surgeon who's got five minutes or 10 minutes that they've got to check their wound, they've got to check their range of motion, they've got to see what's going on. For them, they just don't have time to really get into how do you perceive this. What are some of the coping skills that we can 
incorporate into our clinic or our practice as far as loss or disfigurement, them not being a whole person, or what can we do to help with those issues? I'm very frank with people when they say to me, when I go out in public, everybody stares at me. I say, yeah, they do. Your hand looks different than everybody else's hand now. And people are curious about it. Some people are very judgmental about it. Some people may be stigmatized by it, and they may stigmatize you because of it. People are going to have lots of different reactions to that. And I think just, again, normalizing that process, it allows them the opportunity to say something like, yeah, I remember I saw this guy that lived in my neighborhood who was missing a finger or missing his leg or whatever. Everybody was aware of it. It's like, okay, and so after you knew him for a while, what did you think of him? And it's, well, he's just who he is. And it's like, yeah, that's how people are going to think about you after they get to know you and you go through this. Now, the hard part is always the clerk at the store where you put your hand out for change and the change falls through where your finger isn't anymore or whatever. The clerk says, oh my God, what happened to you? It's easy to react to that and to become very embarrassed and very flustered. And we work with people on just simple things like, I'd rather not talk about that. Or that happened a long time ago. I try and ignore that now. So that they have a way to politely disengage from that line of speaking. Because oftentimes you run into these people and they'll ask one question, what happened to you? Well, I got hurt at work. Well, how did that happen? What type of work were you doing? And pretty soon they grilling them on their whole life history. And it's not because they're trying to be mean or anything. They're curious. They want to understand what it is that this person has been through. But it causes a lot of discomfort for the individual who's had the disfiguring injury. And so I work a lot with people just on being assertive and setting boundaries and choosing who they're going to reveal their story to and who they're not, and understanding that it's okay to deny people that information. Just because you got hurt doesn't mean that you have to do that. You had breast cancer, you don't have to tell everybody that you had mastectomies and had a reconstruction or whatever. It's none of their business. And it's the same thing, although it's different with the hand because it's a public part of your body, but it's the same boundaries are in effect. You don't have to explain what happened. You don't have to go into it. You don't owe anybody anything in terms of information about this. If you choose to disclose that, that's your choice and that's under your control. But if somebody is being intrusive, you just need to reinforce the fact that here's the line. This is all that we're going to talk about. And that's way behind me and just not comfortable talking to you about that. I work with kids that are born with congenital hand differences. And we say the same thing is Our hands are very public and people are curious, but you get to be in charge of that narrative. Some like to come up with a crazy story about how maybe they lost their hand in a by a shark or whatever the story is. They get to choose that or they can say, you know what? I'm not ready. I don't want to talk about this with you. And they get to be the one to politely say, this is my hand. This is who I am and move on. So it's the same with our kids that are born with a hand like that. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you acquire it. It's important to be able to say, this is what it is. We do the same thing with our our patients who have facial deformities. They may have cleft palates. They may have all kinds of things that have happened to them, injuries to their face or fractures or whatever. That's another public part of your body. You don't have to explain to people how this came to be. So I have one last question. As far as medication, Is that something that would be a component that you would be able to prescribe or would you refer out if you suspect like whether it's anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants or 
anything with that nature. I'm a psychologist. In Wisconsin, psychologists cannot prescribe. I think there are either 12 or 16 states where psychologists can prescribe, but we cannot hear. So if I need somebody to have a prescription, I may work with their PCP because 70% of psychotropic medications are prescribed by PCPs. Or we'll try and get them into the psychiatry department to see somebody there. Unfortunately, again, right now, wait lists are horrendous. It's hard to get people in in less than six months. Sometimes I can pull strings, get somebody in, but that's not always the case. PCPs are really the lifesavers of the whole mental health system right now in terms of providing prescriptions. What I found is they're very open to suggestions. So if I contact them and say, so-and-so is going to be coming in to see you and they're having nightmares and they're having a lot of flashbacks and things, you may want to prescribe prozosin or consider, I always say, you may want to consider prescribing prozosin and maybe sertraline for them to help with their PTSD symptoms. Nine out of 10 times, I'll either get a call or I'll get communication through my chart or something from the physician that says, what's the dose that you would recommend starting at? Even though we're not prescribing, we're more knowledgeable about it than they are. And so you say, okay, well, most of the time, people I work with start them at two milligrams of prozosin, and then they increase it to four if it hasn't, they haven't responded within two weeks and blah, blah, blah. And we lay out how this is done and what worked in the past for other people and things. And they're very appreciative of that. And they're oftentimes very willing to pursue that. I don't know how things are at anybody else's facility, but we have also developed a model here where... In our primary care clinics now, there's a psychiatrist and a psychiatric nurse that are in there along with counselors and therapists that are embedded right in the primary care clinics so that those services are readily available or available within a couple of days. Now, they don't follow people long term, but they'll at least get them started and monitor their medications for a couple of times before they transfer care to somebody else, which helps a lot with the big wait times that we have for getting into somebody that's going to follow someone long-term. Well, I don't know, Kara, do you have anything else to ask? I don't think so. This has been really helpful, given me ideas on ways to interact with patients who have sustained these traumatizing injuries and helping them. I don't have someone right there in our clinic that can help. And we do have some services available to us, but many times we are seeing those patients more frequently. And so being able to have that conversation and be comfortable bringing that up and supporting our patients so that they can cope with this and get back to what they want to and need to be able to do, I think is important. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. We appreciate it as well. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.